little bit? Sure, I can do that. Um, Alder Bidar Saloff is a notified absent tonight. Um, Alder Carter? Alder DeMar? Here. Campbell? Here. Campbell? Here. Thank you. Um, and staff tonight, uh, Heather Allen and Captain James Wheeler. And you, Lisa Belter. <laughs> okay, so we should use our outside voices? Yes. This room is a, a, a suck of noise. That's being someone hard of hearing, I never hear it, so I will remember that. Oh, no, they are. Oh. Speakers. But these are the right there in the speakers. Yeah. Okay, is that better? Thank you. Um, so we need to um, approve a set of minutes, three different sets of minutes. Did people take every chance to take a look? I did. So moved to approve the minutes of November 9th, the 21st, and December 1st. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. So now is the time for public comment. Anybody wishes to speak to us about any topic, you're welcome to. There are things like this somewhere in the back of the room. And we do have um, the first speaker is Carl Lansness. And you have to come and speak because remember we're on the city channel. Everyone wants to hear what you have to say. I wanted to just talk. I assume Chris Taylor is going to be coming and speaking. I was primarily wanting to speak to that topic after she'd spoken. Is that possible? Yes, but she's not here, so <laughs> then we could just sit and um, everyone got this handout. Yeah, I, I will call you after then. Okay. We'll do. So we all got a handout that should sort of be the topic that Chris is presenting. Yes. But we can continue with the agenda. We have disclosures and recusals. Does anybody have any um, disclosures or excuses under the city ethics code? No. Okay. What? Okay. Is that better? Yes. So is this better? Yeah. Okay. I guess I'm the soft-spoken one, aren't I? Um, why don't we just discuss our upcoming meetings while we wait for Representative Taylor? Item number six on our agenda has a whole series of... Uh, we have a January 10th meeting at the Madison Police Department Training Facility on Hemwright. Sergeant Kimbit Chu, who's the, uh, the brand-new Use of Force Coordinator, and Lieutenant Amy Chamberlain, who is the person who knows about this new software, will be there to provide um, a tour. And also, as I think uh, Alder DeMar was really interested in having them show us their tool belts because those are some pretty weighty things that they wear every single day. And there's a lot of tools on them. And when Alder DeMar was, was shown that, she felt that would be useful for all of us to see. And this will be a public meeting. You all are welcome to come. And this is sort of the state-of-the-art um, facility that the police department uses to train. And anyone who's been there, it's, there's these kind of really interesting rooms where you can – it's kind of cool. You should come. Really, you should. Um, and then the next meeting after that is Wednesday, January 18th. It's one of our noon meetings where we will sort of discuss our process. Now we know we've gotten a lot of um, – had a lot of presentations and we'll probably try to organize what we've learned and what we, where we're at. On January 30th, 
Oh, here comes Representative Taylor. Uh, we'll be at the Warner Park Community Recreation Center on Northport, and we've invited the ACLU to discuss um, surveillance technology and Freedom Inc., who will then um, discuss their proposal for community control. There's February meetings on the 2nd. Again, one of the noon meetings where we'll discuss our uh, process. Thursday, February 16th at 6 o'clock, we'll be in the City County Building. We've invited Colleen Clark of the, my three minutes, of the King County Equity and Criminal Justice Coordinator. And then we have an open space on February 2nd. So we're, we are soliciting um, organizations to come talk with us. So if there are groups out there that do community um, and policing work, we're, we want to invite you to talk to us. And then uh, we have a goal we've set for ourselves to, by March 7th, introduce a resolution accepting our report and refer it out to various people your various committees so that it would be at the Common Council on March 21st. And there's more in Legistar if you didn't get bogged down by all those details. And we can talk about that again later, but now Representative Taylor has arrived, and we are so glad that you could come and join us, Chris, um, share the work that you and your staff have been doing. Hi. Hi. I come up here, right? Or do you want yeah. to go yeah, okay, great. We're we're on the city people. channel, so we we need to oh, great. talk in the microphones. Perfect. Although you maybe want to should we switch seats so people can see you? That might be better. Would you all like to see me and not look at the back of my head? Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. Yeah. You know what? Here. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, my name is Chris Taylor. I'm the state representative for this neighborhood. Woohoo! Yay! The 76th Assembly District. And it's um, an honor, really. It's such an honor to be here, and it's an honor to be representing this community in the state legislature. So thank you so much. I did, and I don't know if this is okay, Lisa, but I did have additional handouts to... Um, pass out. So that's a long legal memo that some of you might want to read, some of you might not, but I did bring it. Chris, are those in addition to the ones we got by PDF? So there are those four or five that you sent, and then these are? These are additional. I have so, so much information here. Um, Yes, so these are additional things, and I will go through... um, I will go through those things with you, too, so you know what you're looking at. So um, I was elected in 2011. Uh, in 2012, we had a horrible incident um, about a mile from my house on Baldwin Street where Paul Heenan was shot by a Madison police officer. And that was uh, November 9th of 2012. I did not know a lot about policing. Uh, it was not an issue I necessarily thought I would be working on. 
although I did have some background in um, policing in divided communities, I had lived in Northern Ireland and done some research on the policing of domestic violence in Catholic communities. And Catholic communities in Northern Ireland at the time did not call the police because the police were all Protestants. And the Protestant police force was viewed as the aggressor. And so I had kind of, interestingly enough, looked at situations where communities had a, a distrust of the police, where the police were viewed as the other, not as part of the community. But that was in, in a different country. But I didn't really know a lot about policing here in the United States. And so I started looking at um, what happened in that situation. So Paul Heenan was an unarmed person um, who was intoxicated and he went into the wrong house basically um, one night and the homeowners called the police and the father the dad recognized him as being a neighbor started walking him home there was a little bit of a tussle a struggle and the police officer who showed up um, jumped out from behind a tree with his gun drawn and ended up shooting Paul Heenan and Paul Heenan was unarmed and so this caused, uh, and I know, Marsha, you remember this, this caused um, real heartache for my community, for the families involved, for friends, and I believe for law enforcement as well. Um, and so what I started to do is really try to figure out what happened. How did this happen? How did we get to a point where this, this happened, this unarmed guy was shot? Um, and what I realized in looking at the reports that were done and talking to the police chief and trying to talk to my neighbors and advocates and law enforcement was that we had a real problem in the process of how these instances were investigated. Because at that time, police investigated police. So the lead detective in that case had known the law enforcement officer who was the person who shot Paul Heenan. And I thought, God, that's just fundamentally not a good situation um, because it raises issues in the community of not being able to trust the independence of the investigation. And so one of the first bills that I got passed in the state legislature established uh, a process by which you brought two outside investigators in to lead a police investigation when there was uh, the use of deadly force by an officer. So that was kind of the first phase. That law, I worked subsequently to modify it to make sure there's a conflict of interest policy so the outside investigators don't have a tie to the police department that they are investigating. I've also done a bill that pertains to um, appointing a special prosecutor instead of the district attorney to, make, to, to do the review of the incident, make the charging decisions. So I've done a lot of work um, subsequent to that. And then most recently I'm working on a body camera piece of legislation to establish some statewide standards in the use of body cameras. Not to say you have to use them, um, but to say if you use them, you know, establishing some standards about when are they turned on and when, when, what kind of video can be released to the public and when and what about sensitive crimes and so I worked with the ACLU I worked with a bunch of different groups on that bill and it looks like I have some a Republican uh, very conservative Republican who's actually interested in that bill this session so we'll see what happens to that but basically I have spent hours and hours and hours and my office has spent hours and hours and hours looking at and researching and looking at research on policing and I concluded probably a year ago that, you know what, 
really where you have to start, and this is just my own opinion, is you have to start with the use of force standards that every single police department statutorily is required to adopt. So we have a statute that says to all police departments, you need to adopt a written use of force policy, and you need to post that so people can see what your policies are. Um, you know, unfortunately for my community, there were two more, I've had two more officer-involved shootings in uh, my neighborhood, and kind of the common thread were every, all of the suspects involved were incapacitated to some extent. One person had a mental illness, one person was intoxicated, one person was on drugs, hallucinogenic drugs. And so I really started after the latest well, even before the latest shooting, looking at when do you use force? What are the standards? When do you use lethality? Because if we don't have good standards and good guidelines, how are we ever going to have accountability and transparency in the process? If, you don't, if we don't have policies that say when force can be used. So I want to point out to you first this legal memo that we did in my office to try to inform ourselves and others about what is the standard right now and what are police departments doing who have had some success in reducing lethality. So reducing these lethal encounters, deadly force, where deadly force is used. Unfortunately, in Madison, the trend is upward, our officer-involved deaths. They're not going down. They're kind of on the upward trend over the last 15 years. We all want to see that trend go down. Law enforcement wants to see it. We want to see it. And what I really believe after looking at all this evidence, and I'll go through some of it, is that having more specific use of force requirements and guidelines protects officers as well. It protects law enforcement, and it protects communities, because we all want to make our communities safer. Who doesn't want that? So we all want that. Um, and the, the, what I'm going to present to you today is also a lot of this information um, was also embraced by President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. So that's a great resource. But it has also been embraced by PERF. And PERF is, let me tell you because I get the acronym, sometimes I get it wrong. PERF stands for um, the Police Executive Research Forum. And they have done some super research on use of force and where are we and what, what are the best practices. So to start off with first, you know, I know you all have heard about this Graham v. Connor objective reasonableness standard. And that is what the standard now is in evaluating the use of force from a court. That's a standard that a court use, uses. And what it says is that uh, law enforcement must use a reasonable use of force um, and can use a reasonable use of force when the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of officers or others. Now, the problem with this standard is it's fairly broad, it's fairly broad, and it, it's about what police officers can legally do, but it doesn't provide guidance on what officers should do in certain circumstances. It is the floor. Okay, it is the um, bottom of these standards. There's police departments all around this country that have further defined when force can be used. 
Okay? So you can go and you can define what that standard means and adopt pretty specific guidelines and pretty specific policies about when force is used. So I have been a little, you know, every time I hear, oh, well, it's a use of force, that's our legal guideline, we can't do anything about it. Well, there are police departments all around this country that have adopted very specific standards about when force should be used. Okay, so when you hear, oh, there's nothing we can do about it, oh, you know, this is a legal standard, that is totally incorrect. If you talk to any legal scholar up at the university, up at the law school, and I have, they'll all say this objective reasonable standard, that's the, that's the bottom. You can build on it, and you can establish very specific guidelines that reflect the values of your community and the values of this state. That's what should be reflected in these policies, right? It's the, it's the standard of the state. But it is a broad, it is a broad, broad standard, okay? So, um, but it's, it's not, uh, it's the bottom standard, it's not the ceiling. So communities have built upon this standard and further defined, what does it mean to them? What is objective reasonableness to them? Some communities have said, well, to us it means that lethal force should only be used as a last resort. And so some communities, some police departments, have adopted that standard, like Cincinnati. They have said, you know, lethal force should only be used as a last resort. Um, and so that's one example. Uh, so unfortunately, though, we have, you know, we have had other, and these are all standards established by the federal courts, um, that have even broadened this use of force standard. I mean, we had a decision from the Seventh Circuit, which is our uh, appellate court here in Wisconsin. It's our federal appellate court that says um, that, you know, the Constitution, uh, there's no precedent for the Constitution requiring law enforcement officers to use all feasible alternatives to avoid a situation where daily force can justifiably be used. And there's... Um, they don't believe the Fourth Amendment requires the use of force um, as the, or don't require the use of the least or the less deadly alternative so long as the use of deadly force is reasonable under Gardner v. Tennessee and Graham v. Connor, which are the federal standards. But again, we can go above that, and communities are going above that all over, um, all over this country. So what are some of the best practices that we saw? And really the goal is to reduce incidents of Deadly force. So that was my goal in looking at all these policies, and we looked at dozens and dozens of policies, police department policies on the use of force. So what were some of the best practices that we saw? And that's on page three of this legal memo. So one of the things we saw fairly consistency, fairly consistent, uh, fairly consistent in some um, policies, is this policy that recognizes that the duty of law enforcement is to preserve life. There are many, many departments, and even a U.S. Department of Justice policy that embraces this, that acknowledge that this should be the top goal, the duty to preserve life. The New York policy says the primary duty of all members of the service is to protect human life, including the lives of individuals being placed in police custody. 
the Madison, and I use Madison as a com comparison just so you can see some of the differences, and you can pull up the use of force policies. Madison has had several changes over the last several years in the use of force policy. Um, but the Madison um, policy uh, states the department recognized the value of human life, um, but there is nothing that says it is the duty of our officers to preserve human life. So why do you think that's important? You know, when I looked at that, I thought that was important because that really set a standard. That set a tone in these policies about what the expectation was. It's very clear. It's a very clear tone. So that was something we saw in some of these policies. The other piece that we saw is some departments adopting this deadly force should only be used as a last resort. And lethal force should be the last thing that's considered. And this is called the necessity, a necessity policy. Deadly force basically is the last resort, the absolute last resort. The U.S. Department of Justice has a great policy that sets forth why this is so important. Um, they say the necessity to use deadly force arises when all other available means of preventing eminent and grave danger to officers would likely fail. Um, uh, employing deadly force is permissible when there is no safe alternative. So there's nothing else that would do. Colorado, Cleveland has a great policy. They say officers shall use force only when absolutely necessary as a last resort. So they are very, very clear that that is their policy. Um, so that was something that we saw, this necessity that only use lethal force when you absolutely have to. The Madison policy is less clear. It says deadly force will, will not be resorted to unless an officer reasonably believes that a lesser degree of force would be insufficient. So not quite as strong as a affirmative statement saying it shall be used as a lesser resort. It shall be used when there's no other um, means available. Um, the other kind of best practice that we saw was this issue of proportionality. And proportionality is very, I think, is very important. Basically what it says is the degree of force used will only be in proportion to the threat posed. So you don't use more force than is necessary to whatever the threat is posed. Um, Seattle, the Seattle Police Department has a great policy um, it says the community expects and the Seattle Police Department requires that officers use only the force necessary to perform their duties and such force shall be proportional to the threat or the resistance of the subject under the circumstances. Cleveland, another really great policy. All force must be proportional to the level of the subject's resistance. Um, to be proportional, the level of force applied must reflect the totality of the circumstances known to the officer. Um, generally, only the amount of force required to control the subject shall be used by the officer. So they adopt that proportionality. The Madison Police Department does not have any kind of minimum force or proportionality language in the use of force policies. Um, so that, that could be something to look at, is a more, more proportional uh, policy that sets that tone. The other really important policy that we saw in so many of these police departments, you can look at Seattle, Denver, Cleveland, some really, really good policy on de-escalation. Well, what is de-escalation? 
de-escalation is using tactics to reduce the need to use force in the first place. And this is really an important piece of a use of force policy. Um, and it's important because it establishes that it's an expectation. It is an expected tactic when possible to employ. So it really does establish a standard and a, an accountability measure that without it I think is hard, is hard to get. Um, Denver uh, or Cleveland says de-escalation tactics and techniques are proactive actions and approaches used by officers when feasible to gain voluntary compliance of subjects to reduce or eliminate the need to use force. So that's how they define it. Now, here in Madison, um, there is good training. I mean, there is training done on de-escalation. In fact, there was just, I just saw that there had been an eight-hour in-service and de-escalation um, was just very recently included as the Mass and Police Force's standard operating procedure. But it is not in the use of force policy. And I have said, I've said this publicly, it's incredibly important, in my opinion, to put it in the use of force policy so that it does become an expectation when feasible. That was recommended by President Obama's task force on 21st century policing that it not just be trained for, that it not just be taught, but it be included as an expectation in the use of force policies. That we, we do not have um, in Madison, but we certainly have a lot of good, um, a lot of good uh, examples of police departments really making this a cornerstone of their use of force policies. Uh, so that was something that we saw that was very, very good. The other um, uh, kind of best practice that we saw was, and this is, I never even thought of it about this, but a lot of departments are now requiring officers to intervene to stop other officers who are using excessive force and require them to report them to a supervisor. Las Vegas has a, a policy. So many police departments have this policy. It's very, very, you know, when you look at reform efforts, this is really one of the things that you see very, very um, frequently. Um, Dallas has a policy. Cleveland, again, has a good policy. Each officer at the scene of a use of force incident has a duty to intervene by taking all reasonable actions to stop any use of force that is perceived to be unauthorized by this policy. Las Vegas has another really great policy. Um, that officers have to safely intercede to prevent the use of excessive force. So it does establish a duty to do that. Um, that is not something that we have in Madison, um, and so that might be something uh, to look at for you all. So there's other policies as well um, that we looked at. I mean, I think one of the big things uh, that we all know we need is some policies to comprehensively address individuals who are having a mental health crisis or who are somewhat incapacitated by substance by substance or by alcohol. As I said, in the three incidents in my community, all of the subjects were impaired in some way. The best policy we could find on how do you deal, deal with people who are having a mental health crisis or are incapacitated by substance abuse or alcohol was actually New York City. Believe it or not, it was kind of surprising to me, but they had a really comprehensive, and I have it with me, it's like a six-page policy, and they really say very, very explicitly that deadly force shall not be used against 
a mentally ill individual unless there are no other options. And they really do everything they can to clear a scene so people aren't, don't, there's not a risk of other people being injured to bring in a family member, to bring in mental health professionals. So they have a very, very comprehensive policy on how you deal with people who are having um, some kind of mental health crisis. Now, Madison's doing some interesting things. They have five full-time mental health officers, and you all might have heard about that. I could not find a policy, however, on how are you going to deal with people who are having a mental health crisis or some incapacitated in some other way. So I think that would be... Um, that would be very, very smart. So what are we seeing in, in, you know, communities that have adopted these policies? What are we seeing? What kind of results are we seeing? And we're seeing some really good results. Some of the studies in Dallas, Dallas has really um, led on some of these reforms. And some of the things they have adopted is an emphasis on de-escalation tactics. Um, they've adopted a proportionality test, so the level of force you're using has to be proportional and, and reasonable considering the subject, the resistance. And they also have adopted that their priority is preserving life. So this is the result of what's happened in Dallas, and it's been very, very encouraging. First of all, the number of excessive force complaints and officers of all shootings have dropped dramatically since 2010. They had 13 excessive force complaints in 2015. That was down from 147 in 2009. 11 Office of Royal Shootings occurred in 2015. That was down from 23 in 2012. And a lot of that is attributed to this, these new policies on when lethal force is used. Las Vegas. Las Vegas has done some very interesting things. They have a duty to stop excessive force, what I just spoke about. They require de-escalation in Las Vegas. Um, their reforms have resulted in use of force reports dropping from 1,400 in 2005 to 842 in 2012 to 734 in 2013. So these are reports that are dropping, and that's one thing that you do see is the instance of complaints against police drop. So that's a very positive thing. Um, the other, I'll tell you, the other place where we saw some really interesting things was in Philadelphia. And that's on page 10. I go through this. The Philadelphia Police Department says the priority, their priority is preserving life. They require de-escalation. There's a duty to stop excessive force. Deadly force can only be used if there's an immediate danger. Um, and the number of officer-involved shootings have dropped from 59 in 2012 to 23 in 2015. So that's also um, a pretty good drop. That's half, more than half, decreased it more than half. Richmond, California, another example. They went in and really mandated more frequent trainings. Um, they have a bi-monthly use of force review meeting. And the number of officer involved shootings there have dropped um, in less than a half a year. They had only... Um, one fatal officer-involved shooting since 2007. It, and they really went in there. If you read about Richmond, California, they've done some really interesting things. So we are seeing some really positive results here. Um, and as a result of that, one document that I did forward to you um, looks at a draft bill that I'm working on. So I just want to touch on that. And that's 
proposed use of force policies. And that says last revised December 8th. These things get revised a lot. So the, one of the things that I'm looking at doing is saying, could we as a state legislature say that in addition to having a written use of force policy, which is already on the books, could we say it has to include certain things? Like some of these things, these elements that we know are working to decrease these uh, deadly incidents. So one of the um, things I'd like to see is this affirmative statement of that there is a duty to preserve life. Okay, so that's an affirmative statement that the primary duty of all members of law enforcement is to preserve human life, including the lives of individuals being placed in police custody. The second thing that I think is really important is deadly force only being used as a last resort. Now, obviously, you do not want to compromise officer safety, and you don't, they shouldn't have to put their lives on the line, right? That's not what, I'm, what we're asking for. But I have not met anybody, and I've talked to, Law enforcement, I talk to civil rights advocates, I talk to community advocates, I've talked to, you know, experts in areas of policing. And I really have not had anyone disagree with me that deadly force should be the last resort. Deadly force should be the last resort. Proportionality. Law enforcement shall um, uh, use force in proportion to the threat posed. I mean, I also have not had anybody disagree with me on that. That's a proportionality standard. That's something we do not see in Madison's policies right now. But I think that would be a great element, an important element for every policy. And then, of course, de-escalation, um, requiring that when possible or unless impossible, right, because sometimes it will not be possible to, to try to de-escalate. But you know what? Most times I think it is. And that comes from me talking to law enforcement and looking at studies that really do show that most times in these critical incidents, there is a pause. There is an opportunity to de-escalate. So de-escalation, not just in training, but de-escalation as an expectation, you know, in using force, that that should be something employed. And then also the duty to intervene. The officers have to have an affirmative duty to intervene when they see excessive force being used. So those are the things I'm contemplating right now in a state policy. The question has come up, can the city council or can city councils around the state require their police departments, can you all impose use of force policies on your police department? And I was reading some a memo... Um, uh, it was from some time ago that had to do with tasers and whether the city council, it was a memo from Michael May, let's see, dated April 19, 2005. And I've, all, I've passed out a memo from our attorneys. We actually have attorneys in the state legislature. I am an attorney, but we also have attorneys. And I asked them this question. What, is there anything that prevents a city from being able to require these and there is nothing specifically that, unless you're Milwaukee, a Class A city is treated a little differently. But outside of Milwaukee, there is nothing specifically to say the city council um, can't require that there be some standards in the use of force. And I did pass out the memo from our senior staff attorney that goes through this. It is a bit, I, I will say, there's nothing that specifically prevents it 
But this is an issue where we don't have case law. We don't have a lot of legal authority that looks at it. But what we do have is we have the city council, at least here in Madison, and, you know, I'm looking at Madison because that's where I live. But if you looked at other city councils, you might have very similar ordinances at the city level. But um, the Common Council has very broad policymaking authority to act on behalf of the health, safety, and welfare of the public to enact ordinances. Now, you do have to balance that with the police chief's um, authority to in statute and or in ordinance really to manage the police department to run the police department but it does look like there's very broad powers here that you all have and then there's also very specific there's a specific statute that says that your orders are supposed to be followed um, but there is nothing specifically to say you can't do this or you can't you know and, and this attorney even concludes that it these statutes likely authorize the Common Council to provide at least some direction to the city's police department on the police department's use of force policy. So I include that for you all just to look at, you know, I know you're looking at these issues, so you can consider that as well. The other piece of legislation that I'm looking at is requiring, because we do have uh, a statute that does make certain training mandated, annual training mandate, and guess what it's about? It's about firearm training has to be done every year, and vehicle pursuit. In our state statute, those are the two things that have to be trained on. I would like to see de-escalation added to that statute. So I'll also be working on that to see if we can get some agreement on that. The third piece is, um, it's kind of hard to believe, but we do not collect information at the state level on officer-involved deaths. We don't know who's, who is being killed, how many people are being killed, who are these people, where do they live? So, um, and this actually came to me working with the Wisconsin Professional Police Association that uh, Jim Palmer had brought to my attention. You know, we really don't know uh, the numbers. He's trying to keep track of it. But he, you know, is cutting out the newspaper articles and looking online. But so another piece of the legislation that I would like to see is an actual having the DOJ collect and, and keep this information and identify demographics of, of the person who was shot or uh, killed. And there's a bunch of different time, date, kind of, you know, where the person lived, was the officer responding to a call, or if the contact was self-initiated. So I really think we, we could use that data, and I think we have some broad consensus around that. The last piece is directing the Law Enforcement Standards Board, and the Law Enforcement Standards Board here really does look at um, training and sets training requirements and really looks very closely at law enforcement issues, but to try to direct them to also look at best practices um, in the area of someone who has a mental illness. I mean, it would be great um, to get more information. You know, we found New York City that they, they had a fairly good policy, fairly comprehensive policy, but I'm sure there's other best practices out there. So really direct this board to look at best practices. Looking, ask the board to um, address uh, encouraging officer intervention accountability and best practices around there where we have excessive use of force, developing effective programming for officers who experience traumatic events. What is the most effective program for officers who have seen trauma and experienced trauma? So the other piece that I was looking at and 
contemplating either as a, probably a separate bill, is to try to get the law enforcement standards boards to help us look at some of these issues and make some recommendations to the legislature. So those are some of the things um, that I am working on. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Which one? You want this one? This one. Okay. Yes. I do have other cop. I thought I sent this all to you. Oh, you did not get this one. Oh, okay. I revise this stuff every time I look at it. I'm like, oh, the wording is not quite right. You did get it. Okay. It's not very different. I just kind of tweaked the language a little bit there. Um, and, you know, I have to tell you all, there is support for these kinds of reforms from law enforcement. I have a whole, you know, I have a whole sheet of these of quotes from police chiefs. From the, I have a police chief from Truckee, California, saying, our role and our responsibilities as chiefs are larger than the minimum legal standard. Policing never remains the same. We are always striving to advance and improve on what we do. I see our current situation as an opportunity to raise the bar while honoring the incredible work performed every day by our officers. So there is a lot of interest, I think, in more clearly defining what our expectations are when lethal force is used. And I think we must do it. I really do. I don't think there, there is an option. I think our community wants it, and I think anything we can do to maximize the safety of our community and officers is going to be very, very important. Um, the one other thing I wanted to mention that I think does make a difference, and this is a, a bit on a different um, topic that I, I investigated a little when I was doing my initial research on independent review in a criminal context. There's also an internal review. So when there is a, a shooting, and uh, let's take a police shooting, there's a criminal investigation that happens, but there also is an internal review that happens where internal affairs in the police department conducts an investigation to see were there procedures that were violated, were there internal policies, not in the criminal context, but were there internal policies that were violated. Many, many communities have gone to an independent outside investigatory process. They've taken out of the police department and they have hired an ombudsman or a panel or some kind of uh, outside investigatory process so that it's not done within the police department. And you can look at Eugene, Idaho, or Eugene Oregon, Boise, Idaho, and I have stacks of research on, on this issue. We were not, you know, we started in the legislature really on the criminal side, not, we, we didn't really want to go through the internal side, but that there are a lot of examples of really kind of moving towards a more independent internal review process. Because I think what we all want to do, and law enforcement wants to do this as well, is maximize the accountability and transparency so that public has trust. Law enforcement needs the public, right, to perform their job. They need the trust of the community, and I think most want the trust of their community. So it's just another kind of reform that we have seen. I think there's 80 different uh, counties and localities that have really gone to an independent internal investigation model. And so there's lots of examples out there of that. I'm not currently working on that, but I certainly have a lot of research on that issue. Um, the last question I get is liability. Well, doesn't increasing 
you know, or defining these standards, isn't that going to increase our liability? And I have to ask you all, you know, I know there's been a $2.3 million payout to Paul Heenan's family from the city. There are other pending lawsuits. You know, this is incredibly expensive in my, it's, it's, it, the human toll is catastrophic, obviously, um, of these incidents. But it's also incredibly expensive for our city. So kind of in my opinion, anything we can do to lessen these incidents is not just going to save human life and increase safety for every person involved, but it's also going to lessen, in my opinion, these lawsuits. And, you know, I think anything that we can do uh, on that realm, too, is really important for the city. Uh, so that's the other the other question I get. So, oh, we can't do it. It's going to increase our liability. Well, look at all these police departments that have done it. You know, they're doing it. And they're having some success in reducing these incidents and then reducing the lawsuits and reducing the uh, harm that's inflicted. So I, I really don't necessarily think that should be that – I don't think that should be an obstacle when you're looking at these issues. Um, so – that's what I have. I'm happy to answer questions. I know some questions went up in the audience, but I don't know your protocol if we have people, um, you know, ask questions. But I'm, I'm certainly happy to answer any questions you all have. It, it strikes me that now is the time for us to suspend Robert's Rules of Order, a policy we've agreed to do on certain topics, that to allow all of you, if you're interested, um, to participate in our meeting more than just the three minutes, you come and go, and, um, and so that we can have a more robust conversation. So um, if someone wants to, I don't know if I can move that or? Okay. All those in favor? Aye. Okay. So that means that um, I know we will probably have a lot of questions, but I want to give all of you some questions, opportunity questions and maybe if there are people that could just sort of take turns coming up to the microphone or raise your hand and we could create a queue just or you know or not it's up to you of course but um, we're, we'd like to hear from you and just tell us who you are you might want Lisa might want you to register too or I don't know how that we haven't done this yet okay and please talk into the microphone so that we can all hear you and the cameras can hear you an in, oh, I'm Suzanne Bergen, and I live in the Union Triangle. And there was an incident, it's probably two years ago now, with a neighbor where I was just, my partner and I were just flabbergasted when we saw what happened because it looked like such an excessive use of force for what had happened. Um, and I reported it to the police, and I, on several occasions when I've talked to the police about this, they refer me to the state's training standards, that they're following the state training standards, or I don't know if they're called standards or what, but I'm trying to figure out how that fits with the individual city policies. Can you tell me anything? It's very confusing. I read the state um, training policies, and you have to go very, very deep in there to get any mention of use of force. Um, so it is one of the factors that is supposed to be looked at for assessing the reasonableness of uh, an officer's conduct mm -hmm. is what do the training do. Mm -hmm. um, but I really do believe these, the policies 
are the crux. If you don't have clear policies, and if we're going to say, okay, it's this very broad federal standard where any reasonable belief, even if it's wrong, that somebody was in danger is enough, um, that it does not provide the guidance that even law enforcement officers think is out there. You know, I don't know if you read the training series in the Wisconsin State Journal, but there was one of the articles was this discussion with law enforcement that, well, when do you use force? And this kind of disbelief that it's this very broad subjective standard and there aren't more specific guidelines. So is that standard what's used in the state trainings, the federal standards that are very broad? Or states interpret the federal yes. standard? Yes, so the state standard in looking at use of force, what is appropriate, is that minimum federal okay. standard. Now, if you ask the state, what they will tell you is, well, that's just the bottom. Police departments can build upon uh, the standard. Because I never got that. I never got that sense that the police departments could do anything beyond that. And I'm, I'm really pleased to hear what you've done and that, 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 yes, in fact, the local police have a lot of a lot of flexibility in being more specific. So I'm really, I just want to say I'm really pleased that you're doing this. And, thank you. And I really like a lot of the recommendations. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah, not only can so they, let me they just are ask doing the captain, you know, because here we have somebody who may be familiar with oh, yeah. what you might have been told. What, what yeah. would you, how would you answer Sue, what she, her question? Yeah. Well, we do have a process. So when... A complaint is filed, it goes through our internal affairs. After that, an assessment is made to see whether any policies or state laws were violated. So that assessment is done, and then a determination is made whether or not um, the officer violated. And I did file a complaint, Mm -hmm. a written complaint. I spent a lot of time on it, and I was told that it came in too late and that I wasn't I was just a witness. I wasn't involved in the activity, so they were not going to investigate it. Although two officers, two very nice officers, came and spoke with me, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I just felt like something was wrong. I felt like, I felt like my neighbor was probably traumatized by what happened, and it was, it, it should have been a traffic violation. And I don't know. I mean, <laughs> there were reasons why it was late, and I could have probably combated that, but I couldn't combat the. The, uh, is, is it true that the, if you're not actually involved in the incident, your complaint doesn't count if you just witness something? I don't. I would have to talk yeah. to our internal affairs. That just seemed odd to me, and I dropped it at that point. And uh, you know, I know the commission was forming. I've kind of been following it, mm-hmm. but I was kind of baffled by 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 it all. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing I just want to say about it is, it seems to me that just based on on that incident with the neighbor and other things I've been following, that one of the things that happens is there are so many guns out there. And so you have two groups of people, the people who are maybe committing crimes or not, or people that are unknown by the police but they might feel suspicious of, who might have guns, and then there's the police with guns, and they're two groups that are afraid of each other. And it just seems, I mean, the whole gun control issue plays into this in a way that that is daunting. But um, another issue that needs a lot of work, I think, from my perspective. That is, you raise a really important point, because officer safety decreases as the gun ownership in a state increases. Mm-hmm. And 
um, we could do a lot more to protect law enforcement with background checks, with closing, you know, 40-hour waiting periods. I mean, this is what I hear from law enforcement. If you want to protect us, make sure that we are making it very hard for dangerous people to get guns. Yeah. They're certainly a lot harder than, than what it is, is now. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's something we have been pursuing, unfortunately. Then uh, Iran has a death road. grip on the yeah. legislature, and that's just a horrible fact. But we are trying to change that, and we are trying to pursue policies that we know are going to make law enforcement safer. And even the officers that came and spoke with me, I think one of them does the training, is in charge of training, and I forget who the other one was. But they even said at the end of our conversation, in retrospect, it would have been better if, if the officer who responded to the call with the neighbor had waited for a second officer to come and waited for backup. Um, I mean, one of the issues was that the, the neighbor was running to get in the house, and he prevented that and hurt her in the process. But if, in fact, I, I, I mean, I heard this from another neighborhood officer, well, we didn't know those people in the house, I mean, which isn't a, a, an excuse. And they said, in retrospect, if he had just waited for a backup officer to come and they could have gone together, they could have gone to the door, and felt safer than one officer being there alone. But, I mean, it just feels like there's fear that's at the basis of so much of what happens, and and it's fear of guns a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anyway, It's a real fear. I'm getting repetitive. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And thank you, too. Yeah. Thanks. Somebody else like to come up? Hi, Carl. I think some of you know what they are. <laughs> okay. And Chris, you may know, I've talked to you a lot about the language of the heart, nonviolent communication. These giraffes are what Marshall Rosenberg, graduate of UW-Madison, used to represent the language of the heart because they have the largest heart. Giraffes have the largest heart of any landmass animal, and if we need something now, boy, we know, that's we, you know, we've talked about that. And Chris, I'm so grateful for the research you've done, the heart you bring to our community, this oh, issue, and so on. I mean, you know, in much you. I, I honor oh, you in many you. ways, thank and you, I really love today, as you spoke about not just the policies of use of force, but the po wanting the policy of de-escalation, which I feel is near hugely critical to this. The only thing I want to add is the responsibility of we the people, we the community, the citizens to de-escalate. Mm -hmm. uh, some of you know I've been involved in both sides of the fence where I got a taste of uh, having three officers called on me in a church and the language with good intentions of the officers uh, raised my rage and resistance to the point where I could have it took huge resistance on my part to not escalate the situation and the chief and several captains and I have laughed about this but it, we learned a lot from it about the power of language I mean, to escalate um, the power of language. I believe that's a critical part for all of us on both sides, citizens and, and leaders and police. 
to de-escalate. I had a, another situation just up the street here where I grew up and until a couple of years ago was living back in my childhood home with my mother, went across the street in the middle of the night, several nights, said Boyum's grandson, which came back and lived there for a while, was out in the middle of the night screaming in ways that was terrifying the neighbors. And for several nights, the neighbors called 911. One night, something told me that's not what he needed. And even though I didn't know Sebastian, and I was terrified, something told me to go out and face my fears and walk my talk see what Sebastian needed. Uh, yes, he was heavily intoxicated, and he was probably dealing with some other issues, uh, other mental, emotional issues. And yet, by following the inner, inner guidance, as well as the training of de-escalation that I've explored for many years, by the time we were done, he just wrapped his arms around me and took me on a tour of the house. He just needed love. And, and, I, and I think there's so many cases where someone is so quick to call the police after judging someone as evil, dangerous, when really they're just crying out for help. Help. I'm in pain. I need empathy. And, as, and, when, and yet when told what to do, I mean, when someone like that is approached with demand, commands, do this, do that, which many are trained to do. That's what I see escalating. That's what escalated me when facing police. And I want to see the leaders of our community challenging not just the police, but challenging we the people to rise higher, to reach deeper, to find the courage and the humility to face, embrace, and love those we fear and judge. It's the only thing that gives me hope. Thank you. You know, Carl, I have to say, I am incredibly optimistic about the good work that we can do. I think that we have the opportunity to build a consensus in our community working with law enforcement about yeah. what we want to see. My constituents want to work with law enforcement. They don't want to see, they don't want these incidents to occur. Law enforcement doesn't want these incidents to occur. So we have an opportunity, and I believe in some of these principles and some of these policies that I've talked about that we all agree on. I, I literally, I've, I've heard very little objection. I've met with a lot of law enforcement. I've met with the chiefs of police. Um, and I am very transparent. I want your feedback. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you hate everything I said. I still want, I want to hear from you because I think we have an opportunity here to build a consensus around these principles. And we need to take the opportunity to do it. So I am very optimistic, even though I'm working in a building that's sometimes very, very difficult. Um, you know, but it is by having these conversations, Right. It's having we have to be able to talk to each other. We yes. have to be able to have these conversations with people who may not agree with us and to try to hear them what they are saying. But I do believe we have such incredible opportunities here. The community, my community wants these kind of reforms that they believe and I believe will help everybody involved. Yes.
Yes. So that's what I want to do. Yes. I believe it, and I've seen it and felt it. And in fact, I'm getting chills now, Chris. <laughs> You're one of the few that gives me hope in our state legislature. <laughs> You're one of the few that that does I I that does listen, and I've I've really really appreciated it, honored you specifically. And I see. I do feel hope. And I and 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 with the officers, I've got I've developed good rapport with several of the captains and chief, and with and with some of the others. I mean, I've had some sweet interactions with Amelia. In fact, if you haven't read it yet, I'd encourage you to read an article in today's Cap Times by Amelia Royko that talked about her experience last month with a 3 a.m. intruder that was drunk, incapacitated, attempting to break into her house. And her process on how she responded touched me. That could have saved a night, saved a life because it was someone that was drunk and was mixed up on which house, and it could have ended up in just like many of these other situations of a deadly use of force. So I do believe we have the people and the power and the possibilities, as you say, and many of them are sitting at this table and in this room. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, all of you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Are there others that would like to come up? Introduce yourselves. Hi, Greg Lundick. And you will all really fill, uh, fill out one of those yep. when you're done. Thank you. And I'd um, like to thank Chris for her work on this and um, a very good presentation. Um, I'm going to touch on a number of disparate related points. Um, the first thing I'll, I'll mention, you know, having looked at um, like deadly force policies for large U.S. cities, the, the majority of cities appear to have policies that are more restrictive than Madison's. Um, if you look at the rate of um, fatal officer off shootings from Madison, among large U.S. cities, it's actually at the higher end. Like, it's not at the very top, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, the top third, the top quarter. If you look at um, the rate of fatal officer off shootings for cities that are as large cities that are safe or safer than Madison, like I looked among the 250 largest U.S. cities, um, and the rate of fatal officer off shootings, for, those, for the safer cities, Madison is at the very top. You know, we can do better. We can do better than that. Um, Chris touched on NYPD. I just want to point out the tone for deadly force policy in NYPD is so different than Madison. Um, for the deadly force policy, the first sentence states the primary duty of all members of the service MOS is to protect human life, including the lives of individuals being placed in police custody. That's the very first sentence, and it's also bolded and underlined. There's a very different tone, a very different emphasis for how NYPD approaches this in policy. Um, For dealing with people who are incapacitated, like 11 of the last 12 officer-in-law shootings in Madison 
has been people who are incapacitated either by mental illness or chemically. You know, almost all of these incidents are of that nature. NYPD also has, as Chris alluded to, far better policy for how to handle that. Um, like, and it begins with the primary duty of, and it underlines all members of the service is to preserve human life. Another underlined emphasized sentence, if the emotionally disturbed person is armed or violent, no attempt will be made to take the EDP into custody without specific direction of a supervisor unless there is an immediate threat of physical harm to the EDP or, or others are present. If the EDP is not underlined immediately dangerous, the person should be contained until assistance arrives. Um, again, you know, you know, and they have, you have a very detailed policy, very different emphasis, and much of the policy um, and training derived from the work of James Fife. James Fife was at the forefront of seeking to reduce officer-involved shootings, use of force in American policing. And ultimately, he was hired by NYPD to conduct their training. And he developed some very simple principles. Um, you know, when dealing with somebody who um, is in crisis, you know, one, officers should keep safe distance away from the EDPs and otherwise avoid putting themselves in harm's way when handling EDPs. EDP stands for emotionally disturbed person. Um, two, officers should avoid unnecessary provocative displays or threats of force. Three, an officer should try to avoid confronting an EDP while alone and should always make sure that backup assistance is called so that the EDP can be contained in the same, at the same time that bystanders are cleared away. Four, one officer, the talker, should be designated to talk to the EDP and everyone else on the scene should, quote, shut up and listen. Um, five, officers should make sure the talker is in charge of the scene and that nobody takes unplanned action unless life is in immediate danger. Six, officers should make sure the talker does not threaten the EDP, but instead makes it plain the police want to help him or her, and the way to accomplish this is for the EDP to put down any weapons and to come with the police for help. Seven, officers should take as much time as necessary to talk EDPs into custody, even if this runs into hours or days. You know, so that's the basis for much of NYPD policy and training. And, you know, Madison is doing well in terms of, you know, developing, um, you know, programs for, you know, dealing with the mentally ill and stuff. But it's these practical policies and how these situations are approached and, and worked with that I think really have made a difference for NYPD and, and for other cities that have adopted similar policies. Another thing NYPD emphasizes is in these situations is firearms control, reminding the officers basically to avoid using their firearms, you know, as the incident develops, like there's an explicit reminder that should be made by the supervisor. You know, so like, again, clearing the scene, maintaining zone of safety and moving to, to maintain it, firearms control, um, instructing officers in these situations to always slow things down. All of that helps make a difference. Um, a couple other minor things I'll mention. Um, like one of the things I'd like to see in Madison policy 
is replacing imminent with immediate. You know, a number of cities have done that. Tennessee versus Garner, Garner versus Tennessee uses immediate. You know, there's a difference. Legally, there's a difference. Immediate means it's about to happen. Imminent, it may happen soon. But immediate is a much more stringent standard and much more appropriate for, you know, actually employing something as awful as deadly force. Um, another thing that I think is important is totality of the circumstances. Um, holding officers accountable for tactical decisions leading up to the shooting. Seth Stoughton, who's um, one of the people on the OIR team, has really emphasized the importance of this. He himself is a former officer. Um, like, for example, Philadelphia PD policy, quote, police officers shall ensure their actions do not precipitate the use of deadly force by placing themselves or others in jeopardy by taking unnecessarily unnecessary, overly aggressive, or improper actions. It is often tactically superior police procedure to withdraw, take cover, or reposition, rather than the immediate use of force. That's part of the Philadelphia deadly force policy. And Philadelphia also uses the term immediate rather than imminent. Um, one final thing I'd like to touch on is the issue of liability. Um, a while back, the FBI released a memo um, basically to encourage police departments to adopt more restrictive policies without being overly concerned about liability. And in the conclusion of the memo, it seems critical that law enforcement agencies be capable of developing and implementing policies that are deemed necessary to fulfill their missions without being overly concerned that doing so will create increased risks of liability. When lawsuits are brought against police officers and their agencies under Title 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, alleging violations of federal constitutional rights, the cases suggest it is unlikely that violations of department policy will be considered relevant, although they may be deemed relevant in some negligence actions under state law. Accordingly, those who must assess the defensibility of such suits should not assume that violations of policy render the case indefensible. So I want to thank you for your time. I know there were a lot of disparate things. I don't know how coherent it was, but, you know, and I really appreciate Chris's work. Hi. My name is Kim Dorsey, and thank you all. Um, I'm curious, the uh, deadly use of force as a last resort, obviously a good policy on that makes sense. I'm just curious, though, how you take that written policy and turn it into an actual behavior. What, is there like a specific training package that goes with that? Is that the other communities that used? Well, you, I, not that I'm proposing, but I would hope that police departments and Madison does their own training and they have a very rigorous uh, training, um, that they would train towards these policies. Yeah. So, you know, at the legislative level, we're kind of at 35,000 feet, honestly, and that is one reason why I do not get into um, policies around individuals having a mental health crisis, because it was so specific and so detailed. I thought, you know, that is probably better to leave to localities to develop, or let's ask our law enforcement standards board to look at that and not necessarily get into the details at the state level. I've tried to leave these standards very broad, but a lot more specific than what we have. So it would be up to the department if they were to, 
Yeah, well, maybe we could get this passed. We're going to try. Yeah. It's going to be, um, you know, it's an uphill battle. But um, I think part of what you all consider, and I think communities can consider, is adopting different standards than what they have. Um, and so I hope that that conversation is stimulated today, that we don't, that we kind of get out of this attitude, oh, we can't do anything about it. Well, that's not true. There's police departments all over this country doing things about it, trying to lessen and trying to be more specific. And, and Greg kind of referred to it as different standards. I kind of think of it, and I, I kind of got this frame after talking to one of our legal scholars at the law school. We're not adopting a different standard. We're defining what this existing standard means and what it should include. But it would be up to the department to train towards their standards. Um, now, if we got a state bill passed, the Law Enforcement Standards Board would have to modify some of their training to meet the new state requirements, assuming a bill like this would pass yeah. at the state level. It seems level. like it could still be very subjective for that officer who's out there having to deal with that crisis to decide. It, you're always going to have a degree of subjectivity. There's no way I don't think we can get around that, but I think we can, through more specific standards, provide some more specific expectations and make it the policy, not just something we're training for or talking about. Make it the policy of the department. And that's where I think you saw changes in these police departments okay. is when it became the policy. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Captain Wheeler, when he was talking to um, to our other neighbor here, um, said when complaints come in, there's an investigation to see if any policies were violated. So there's also an accountability aspect to having policies. There's training and there's accountability. So if there if it's not just something we talk about in training, but something that's written, that um, officers can held accountable, be held accountable for that will also change behavior from that end. Yeah. And that's a point, too, that was made by the uh, President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, why it's so important to put in policy. Because if it's not there, there isn't an accountability. It doesn't matter what you're training. If it is not in a policy as an expectation, you don't have the accountability. Thank you. Any other members of the audience like to... Come join us. I don't see any takers. So any others have questions or comments? Alder DeMarc. Thank you. Chris, when you were talking, you said that Department of Justice does not collect data on persons that have been killed. Um, do they collect data on the officers? No. You know, on data when there is uh, an officer-involved death. Okay. There's no data collected at yeah. the state level. I guess where I'm going with this is that it would seem to me that any officer involved in this, there would be um, severe trauma to that officer as well. And I was just curious if there was any any type of data collected on what happens to that officer, if they remain in service, if they leave service, if there's, I mean, I, I have no idea, but I was just curious. Oh, I don't know if the captain knows, but I, not anything that I found, 
Would you like to respond to that, Captain Wheeler? We do have an SOP on aftercare for officers involved in, in a shooting. Um, so it is a process that the officer goes through with time off, you know, assessment, and also to get back into um, patrol duty or get back into their regular um, unit. So there, there is a process there, you know, looking out for the um, health and wellness okay, of the thank officer. You. Thank you. Yeah, I think the unique thing here is that the DOJ is the state Right, and they'll be collecting the data. If it passes, they'll be collecting the data for the whole state, whereas we're getting data for the city of Madison. Thank you. Um, so I've got a couple more questions. Um, you said that you've spoken to many chiefs. Uh, yeah, I met with the um, chiefs of police, a whole group that I talk to fairly regularly about a bunch of different issues. The the Dane County or the no, regional the or chiefs of police. Oh, I, didn't I see. With our chief here too, and okay. presented the proposal to that I was working on because I want his feedback. I sure. want everybody's feedback. I love the captain's feedback. Um, you know, I want law enforcement to be able to talk with me. Well, it's really, really important to me that I, I hear from law enforcement as well as, you know, communities impacted and individuals and families impacted. Because I really do believe we can build some consensus here. I really do. That would be great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Representative Taylor, for your work. Um, my question is actually on one of the items that you mentioned later in your presentation related to investigations and um, the role of independent investigations with officer-involved shootings. Um, for my work, um, I have been looking at um, the PFC and the role of the Police and Fire Commission and um, how they do hearings but do not do investigations. Have you looked at um, have you looked at the relationship between an independent investigation potentially and the work of the PFC and how you see those maybe in the future fitting together? Yeah, I actually have asked this question of our <coughs> council. How can this, can the PFC fill some kind of role here? I, I think there probably is a role for the PFC. I'm not sure exactly what it is, mm -hmm. but I have asked that legal question. I'm not as well versed in the PFC functions. That's you know, I kind of looked at this uh, statewide policy, and uh, I don't know the operating procedures of all the PFCs, but um, I think there probably is an opportunity there. I'm not, I just don't know. I'm not sure how it would be structured. But I don't think there's anything that prevents them. In fact, I mean, it seems like that would be maybe a natural role for them. I just don't know. They'd have to be staffed maybe with, I think one of the barriers to doing this would be staffing. Um, and then I think there's a legal interpretation which seems to be the common interpretation right now among police and fire commissions throughout the state of Wisconsin that their role is very narrow and it does not include investigations or other type of work like okay. communications. Um, and so I actually think this actually might be something appropriate for the legislature to look at rather than individual cities because um, that narrow definition is sort of governing things. Um, so do you think we would, well, if that's the case, then we wouldn't need to change the statute to allow the PFC 
to look at these things. But I will say there are, and I don't know, and I'm happy to chat with you off the record, too, and give you some of the research that we've done. There are a lot of municipalities and counties that have established an independent investigation unit to look at internal complaints. They're not using internal affairs so much anymore. So even if the PSC were limited and not able to do this, I do think there are some really have been some really successful models for other communities about how to make this, again, our goal is more transparency, more accountability, and also, you know, this relationship of trust that I think is so important. So I did ask the question, though, about the PFC. It came up later. I hadn't really thought about it, but I don't have exactly the answer. But I will definitely get you what our legal counsel is telling us. Thank you. You had mentioned body cameras. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, just one thing. I said you wanted to hear my feedback. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. And it's just one thing I think we all need to be cognizant of is that, you know, it's, it's great looking at a lot of these policies across the country, but sometimes you've got to put them into context. And, you know, I would talk to people, even members of my own family, who would say to me, why don't you shoot them in the leg? And I actually had a cousin say to me that, you know, I go to the range and I can shoot the person's leg, hand, and I'm good at it, and why can't police officers do it? And I asked the question to my cousin. I said, is that person shooting at you? And how good would you be able to shoot if the person was coming at you with a weapon? And those are the things that sometimes we don't hear is that context in some of this. And, you know, I'll tell you, it makes an officer like me with 25 years on the department somewhat afraid because every situation is different. And, you know, sometimes when I hear about Philadelphia, I grew up in Philadelphia, so I know a lot about the Philadelphia Police Department. I know how they operate. And we hear Philadelphia, we hear Cleveland, we hear a lot of these departments who are on consent decrees and say, oh, my God, they're so great. Look what they have done. And, you know, really, you know, I thought about the whole New York Police Department, how we're hearing about them. And that's the department where a person, an African-American, was killed right right on video. Right. They have a big... And we talk about these issues. So I, I just think that, you know, we have to listen to the other side, and we have to put these things in perspective. And I think we have to recognize that the courts did say that you can't look at these things 2020 hindsight, because we can look at that and say, well, this person, if they would have went over to this this tree, this, this would not have happened. But we don't know what's in the mind of the officer. We don't know the emotions. We don't know the exact cause. So when we talk about these things, I think, you know, we do have to get all the information and it has to be, you know, within context of how things actually happen on the street. And I think, you know, like I said, for me, that's the thing that I fear most is that I'm going to be judged by someone who's going to be sitting in a chair and take 20 minutes to make a decision on what I only had maybe two or three mm-hmm. seconds to make a decision. And then the other thing I want to say, you know, sometimes these conversations get to where almost like the cops wanted to do this. And there are lots of times where, you know, we don't hear about the times where cops actually 
do a lot of the things that you're talking about. I'll give you an example. Just on the west side, a couple of days ago, we got a call about a person in the um, Rutsett Road area, Boston Road, who had a gun. It was outside. You know Sandy was going to shoot people. First officer on the scene. I see the person set up a perimeter and actually did a very good job tactically of talking the person out of apartment out of an apartment building and taking that person into custody, you know, very safely. So it kind of sounds like a big difference than what we hear where, like, you know, we see a person with a gun and automatically we're running in and, you know, we can't wait just to shoot the person. So there's a lot of good things that officers do every single day where we de-escalate, where we use um, less lethal means. In fact, we're trying to improve our less lethal capability, um, especially with kind of like the beanbag rounds, um, knowing that those are um, effective as in, you know, preventing us from using higher forms of um, force. So I just want to, you know, when we talk about these things, you know, just remember there's another person, an actual person, who are going through some, you know, some stressful times when they have to use deadly force. I try to keep in mind what it would be like to be a police officer and how frightening it could be and how, you know, I think, well, what would I do in some of those situations? Because I don't think they're easy at all. <laughs> and and um, but I did want to ask one question about your process. And I'm speaking as someone who just retired as a, from being a therapist who specializes in trauma. Do you know if uh, after someone is traumatized, an officer, after a shooting, do they do an assessment, a trauma assessment for PTSD? And does a person get treatment if that's found to be? Do you know if that's part of it? Yes, it is. An assessment is done. In fact, it's articulated in our um, policy for aftercare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the officer gets the time off. The officer, you know, has chances to um, get resources, you know, is, um, is um, exposed to the resources that is needed to make sure that officer Great. Um, health I, and wellness is taken that. care of. Yeah, because I know how that, without that, it could be... Mm -hmm. It, it could be a danger to the officer and to, and to other people if they weren't uh, adequately treated or, and, you know, following an incident like that. But, I, no, I, I think police officers have one of the hardest jobs in the world. So I and I've worked with I've certainly we've had a lot of problems in our neighborhood and I, we've had some excellent help from police officers, too. I mean, it's not all one way, um, but. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate what you said. I'd love to continue to chat with you. There are some other countries that train police officers for much longer, and they do train them to shoot in the leg. I know that's not what we do here, but in other places they do, you know, three-year trainings, and they do teach them to shoot not to kill, to shoot at the um, an extremity. That is happening. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, like, in the U.S., it's dogma that you have to shoot center mass or to the head. Um, and when I first heard that, I heard an explanation of why it had to be that way. I bought it entirely. And, and when people said to me, you know, well, why couldn't you shoot to wound? I'd explain patiently, you know, listen, you're in a, you know, a rush situation. 
a leg is a much harder target to hit, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would try to convince everybody else that it wasn't possible. Um, then I came across an article, this article, which began to change my thinking. And then I began looking internationally and found that apparently in most countries and certainly across all the EU, when feasible, the practice and the policy is to shoot for a limb, specifically usually to shoot for the leg. Um, now, if somebody is shooting at you, it's not feasible, or, or well, unless you've got very good cover. But in many incidents, um, you know, people are not shooting. Like you may have somebody with a knife or, you know, a club or something. And I'm just going to read a little bit from this article because I think it's informative. So this guy is a police trainer. He went to, um, in the U.S., he went to the Czech Republic. You know, this guy has a, a ton of experience. That was invited to a training academy in the Czech Republic. Um, and I'm just going to quote a bit. When the signal was given to fire, a large plume of smoke arose from the line. During the first volley, each officer shot about four or five rounds. I squinted my eyes and looked downrange. Though born with poor vision, my eyes were good enough to see that not one single target had a bullet hole in center mass. When scanning the targets more closely, I saw what appeared to be holes, lots of holes, in the legs of the target. My God, I thought to myself, this cannot be a coincidence. I looked over my shoulder to the range master, who was preparing for the next sequence. Why are they shooting in the legs? I said, half-smiling, trying to approach the question casually. Quote, this was a non-lethal drill, he said without hesitation. I felt like a fish out of water. I was startled by his answer. It made no sense to me. But if you're shooting at them, how is it a non-lethal drill? Looking at me as strangely as I was looking at him, he replied, we shoot in the extremities to wound them. We'd reached an impasse on the issue, so we dropped it, and the drills continued. During lunch, I sat with the trainer and reopened the conversation. So tell me again about shooting in the legs. Oh, I forgot. You're an American. You kill everyone. I thought to myself, whoa, hold on there, Skippy. You've got to be kidding. We kill everyone? I guess he could read the incredulous look on my face because he said, look, I've been in the U.S. I've trained there. You teach... All shots go to center mass, followed by headshot. Yeah, but, I said, my mind racing for an intelligent response, there are reasons why we shoot at those locations. I began by telling him about deadly force in the United States. I was sure he'd missed this part of his classroom instruction. Perhaps it was the language barrier. I don't know. So I was going to defend our method of using deadly force and outline the reasons why we only shot center mass. I spoke rapidly, trying to outline our entire concept of police use of force. I talked to him. I told him it was the largest target area of the body and the easiest to hit. I felt like I needed a chalkboard, some chalk. I wanted to draw pictures and graphs, use arrows and lines, and write smart-sounding definitions. I wanted to wow him with my deep understanding of the issue and make him take back that last statement. I was, after all, the expert they'd invited from a foreign country. Besides, I couldn't just let it go. We don't shoot to kill, I said. We shoot to stop. He nodded and said, yeah, but that's where your vitals are, and a shot there would be likely to kill you. His arrogance was remarkable. I told him it was our job to stop a subject, and the chest was the best area for doing that. Have you ever been shot in the leg, he asked. Um, no. Well, that will stop you. It is very painful. Now he was really getting under my skin. Okay, I said, but surely your officer, officers under stress are not going to demonstrate the marksmanship qualities they have on the range. How in the world do you expect them to hit a skinny leg in motion? I had him this time. He responded, here in the Czech Republic, most of our shooting occurs in very close distance, two or three meters. He retorted, yeah, I said without thinking, it's pretty much the same for us. Wrinkling his face, he replied, 
you don't think you can hit a leg at a distance of three to six feet? I reeled back. This guy pissed me off. Okay, I said, but what if the round passes through? What about the round striking an innocent person who happened to be on the other side of the target? Now I had him against the ropes. Surely those cops are mindful of the dynamic environment in which law law enforcement plays out. Again, he responded without hesitation. That's another reason why we aim to the legs. At the distance we usually fire, remember, two or three meters, the bullet has a trajectory toward the ground of only a few feet. A pass-through is rare. We use hollow-point bullets, but if it does occur, it is not likely to travel much further. He paused and continued, You see, Roy, here in the Czech Republic, we don't always shoot to kill. Sometimes we shoot to stop. It's our non-lethal shooting. I countered, Non-lethal shots, huh? Come on. You know, there's probably not a single square inch in the body that's not packed with veins, arteries, or major groups of blood-rich capillaries that one shot will cause the subject to bleed out. As soon as I spoke, I realized I was now becoming indignant and desperate. He replied, yes, sir, there is always that possibility, but with medical technology today, it is rare that a non-vital shot will ever result in death. I thought back to something I heard in the academy years ago. It was meant to be inspirational, but also became a statistical fact in countries with modern emergency services. If you're shot, you know you're shot, you'll probably survive the wound. Um, anyway, you, you get the basic picture. Um, I thought it was useful reading that. Um, I know it took quite a while, so but thank you. Well, Greg, I think you just made my point there, actually, because, you know, no way would I be saying I used non-lethal force and then I'm using my gun. That doesn't make sense to me. If I'm using my gun, I'm using lethal force, okay? And, again, we talk about context, okay? Now, if he's in a non-lethal situation, why don't he use something that we know, like a beanbag round, that's not going to cause death? If I'm using my gun, the likelihood of death is very high. That's why they call it deadly force. And to mix those words, non-lethal, we're doing non-lethal training with the gun. Those are the things, like I said, that we need to put into context. And when we read these articles from other countries or other places where they may not even have to deal with guns. I was just talking to a professor from Germany. They don't have to deal with weapons at all because you can't have one on you no matter what so again we got to take a you know as i heard the totality of the circumstances and not just read something from an article and say well this is like a best practice because i don't know this guy i don't know his background he's just writing the article he could be anybody yeah and you know i have oh go ahead It's not practical in a lot of situations where this kind of incident occurs. If you look at many of the MPD recent officer-involved shootings, the person was armed with a bladed weapon or some such. They weren't, they didn't have a gun. You know, like if you look at Pauly, if you look at um, Michael Schumacher, you know, many of these cases, you know, it wasn't somebody with a gun. If an officer doesn't have time to get out of beanbag. Now, yeah, if, if the subject is a distance, they have time to get out of beanbag, et cetera, yeah, that's an option. Um, but in many of these cases, the person's approaching rapidly. The officer basically is going to shoot. question is, shoot center mass or shoot for the luck? And, you know, Europe actually does have, you know, a very low rate of, you know, these fatalities. So how do, you know, we have a policy about tasers where 
If you're an officer alone, you cannot use them. Are we revisiting that policy with the change in technology of tasers? Because in some ways, I mean, they can kill you, but chances are they won't, I don't think. We evaluate our SOPs on a continuous basis. So, you know, we do take and look at data, and we do see what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, we do change our SOPs accordingly if they need to be changed. So are you looking at tasers, you know, in a recent period to evaluate whether a solo officer could use one or keep it as it is where they have to wait for backup before they could use one? That would be better answered by Kimba. He's our use of force person, and that's the person who's going to be collecting a lot of the data. Okay. Alder Tamar. Thank you. I didn't realize that that was a policy. Why is that a policy? The officer can use a gun when they're alone, but they can't use a taser. I don't understand. Anyone can answer. Thank you. Well, it depends. Like I said, it depends on the situation. If we're coming up on where a person may have a deadly weapon and you want to deploy a taser, then, yes, we're going to have someone that's going to be there that may, you know, that can use deadly force if need be. The reason being, tasers may fail or may not have any effect. I mean, these things aren't always 100 percent, you know, when you use them. So when we're coming upon a deadly force situation, like a person with a knife or whatever, and the person's going to be tased and one officer say, hey, I got the taser, one officer will be there at the ready with the use of deadly force if need be. So it's a backup situation. Thank you. And we'll note a lot of departments do allow tasers to be used by a lone officer. I'm not sure about this, but wasn't that even one of the recommendations for the Dane County Task Force that emerged out of that? I don't recall that. Yeah, I'd have to look to be sure. Like, another thing also is there are taser models that allow more, like, you have a certain failure rate for any given shot. There are taser models that allow two shots, two successive shots without recharging. I'm not aware of those. And like I said, you know, when we look at the use of force, we have to look at the circumstances that the officer was in. Okay? Sometimes we don't know what's going to happen when we arrive on the scene. And so, you know, if the officer is there alone and the situation arises that they need to use their taser, you know, hopefully they can deploy that taser and it's successful. All of these departments that have adopted, you know, the thing that I love about doing this research and getting some recommendations together, it's coming from the police. It's coming from these police departments. They're still looking at the circumstances. And I'm not suggesting we ever not look at the circumstances. But, you know, if you read the use of force policy from Madison or you can go to other communities, it's pretty nonspecific and it's pretty vague. So, but I am not, I just want to be clear, I'm not advocating not looking at the particular situation. All these police departments are looking at the particular situation. But they've determined that it's a better approach to put some more formal guidelines that the community wants. And then I think we all want. I just looked at the Dane County Task Force recommendations. And one of the recommendations that 
And MPD was involved in the task force and, you know, apparently agreed to implementation of these. But as far as I know, hasn't with the tasers. One of the recommendations is allow officers to use electronic control devices, i.e. tasers, when no immediate backup is present. Um, remove the requirement of lethal cover for ECD use. So it actually, that is one of the formal recommendations. But again, like I say, you got to look at it in context. you got to look at it the situation with the officers in. Okay, I've been a police officer for 25 years. I worked everything from patrol. I worked um, the task force uh, when I was a young, younger officer working drugs and gangs. And situations are different. And again, I will tell you that sitting in a chair in this room and trying to make suggestions to a police officer when they're going to be the ones on the street at night, they're going to be the ones approaching the car, they're going to be the ones, you know, that are coming in contact with guns. The number of guns that we're collecting off the streets is just amazing. And we're not talking about cheap guns like, you know, you look in the old days where they had the little revolvers and you'd have tape around, you know, the, um, the handle of the weapon or the grip. We're, we're talking about weapons with extended magazines. And we're talking about high-powered power rifles. So, like I said, there's a difference when you have your life on the line and you're coming into situations to, you, you know, where you have to make quick decisions than to sit back and, you know, read different policies and say, well, that's what the officer should do. And like I said, that's the part, I'm speaking for myself as a 25-year veteran of the department, that's the part that's scary for me is that I'm going to get into a situation where my life is in danger and I'm going to have someone who's going to be looking at different policies and say, well, you should have did this because if I was there, that's what I would have done. And that's not necessarily the case all the time, and that's my only point. Some of these things you got to put into context of what is actually happening, and I think that's what the courts have said, <coughs> is that we can't play 2020 hindsight with a lot of these incidents where officers' lives are in danger. I, but you're bringing up incidents with... Thanks. I didn't actually have a question. It's more of a comment. I think our line of um, discussion and questions are going down a path that's not actually intended for this meeting and is actually intended for the meeting of January 10th when we're at the training facility and we're talking to uh, Officer 2, is Kimba two, yeah. Kimba two um, who is the use of force coordinator and have his presentation and then um, being able to ask questions like, I probably wrongfully ask you, so I, I do apologize for that. Like, why do we do this? And um, he would probably have, um, be prepared to ask those questions. So thanks for um, what you did say, but I just don't want us to go down one way and and get things out of context. And that was my comment. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you for being here. I so appreciate it. But I also wanted to talk just a little bit about, you mentioned guns. And, you know, there's two worlds of gun purchasing. You know, there's the going to the gun shop, waiting two, three days, if that's the law, right, and picking up your gun. And then there's the street purchase which has no guidelines, no policy, totally a free market. And that's the market we can't control. 
So even if we have, and I, I'm all for having gun laws, by the way, but even if we have all the gun laws that we can possibly get passed, that's really only governing the legal aspect of our society, the ones that are going to go to the gun shop, et cetera. But we have another whole world that we can't control that um, could or could not be engaging in um, violent crimes. So I just want to be aware of that because I think a, a lot of times, especially in the news, not you here, Chris, but especially in the news, they put so much effort on the gun shops and <clears throat> the um, open market, I don't know, flea market, gun shows, that's what it's called, gun shows purchase, but they never touch on the other side of that coin. Um, where people buy guns. The other thing I wanted to mention was at the National League of Cities, we talked about body cameras, and there was um, several people from cities that they use body cameras and that the video was not released unless there was an arrest and a trial. So I thought that was really interesting. I'll look through my notes, and I can send you the representatives that were at our table. Thank you. And you mentioned body cameras. Is this something that you were looking at, but that was a future? No, I had a bill last session that didn't require anybody to use body cams. All it said was, if you use body cams, here are some standards, because right now we don't have any. They're on, they're off, there's no consistency. And this was another issue I met with law enforcement, I met with the chiefs, I met with the better sheriffs, uh, you know, to try to figure out, and the ACLU, actually, they had a lot of privacy issues with body cams to try to see could we get some consensus around some basic policies, like when you have mom, you know, who are you recording? What about areas where you have a privacy interest? What if you're in the bathroom? What if you're a domestic violence Victim. What if you were just raped? You know, so we try to really address these really hard issues. How long do you keep the footage? You know, so it's a, I'll, I'm happy to share the bill. It's now, um, we're looking at it again because I do have some Republican interest in the bill. So we're trying to see if we can agree on some common standards. But I'm happy to share that with you. It's a very lengthy, it was the most comprehensive, hardest bill I've ever drafted. It's very comprehensive. We tried to look at every issue that we could, that we thought was relevant. So I'd love your feedback on that, too. I know Madison body cameras are not, you know, being used, and that's fine. This bill does not require any city to use body cameras. I sort of looked at Alder DeMar. When we did study it, the cost of storage and the, the cost of infrastructure is something that you don't think about. But if you want to keep things some permanent record How, where is that going to be kept because it's on like the cloud is it in the cloud should it be in the cloud okay. should it be in a server I mean how do you do that so yeah. those were the sort of the big questions we just started to touch on and and seemed like it was bigger than oh if you spend $50,000 and do a pilot you can learn something well you might learn all those privacy questions like for me it was a neighborhood officer <laughs> So the neighborhood officer who's, like, working with kids who might tell them stuff that, you know, maybe you don't want to have a video of. I mean, so there seems like there would be a lot of legitimate reasons not to 
have them on at all times. Right. So, and we did not require that they be on. Right. No, I, I'm not saying yeah. that. But, but I'll forward it to you because I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, and I think it's important to note uh, the more costs. I mean, even what we're dealing with now, um, just with our in-squad video right. of keeping up with open records requests um, and the cost of um, storing that. And also you have some departments who have now said they turned them off because of open records requests, the amount of personnel, the cost of that, and also because of the storage. Mm -hmm. yeah. It would be nice to one day have kind of a central estate storage ability so that municipalities could mm -hmm. use that. But we're not quite there. But the, all of my entrepreneurs in the tech industry say we're not far away from having many more storage options. The flip side is, like, are we going to be surveyed? surveilled no matter where we are and what we do and it seems like the presumption is yes that you will you have no expectation of privacy when you're in the public realm or even sometimes in your own home so that's somewhat troubling well we we try to preserve that expectation of privacy in your home absolutely and you know in public spaces it's a little harder i mean we've we've had a lot of court decisions on your privacy expectations in a public space but yeah, we really looked at what we really worked with ACLU to try to make sure we were, you know, respecting people's civil rights, the privacy rights. Thank you for sharing that with us. Definitely, yeah. Oh, so, definitely. It's getting late, though. I mean, we've been here almost two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe we should just start to close it. And I did sort of start the meeting talking about some of the upcoming meetings, but I'll remind people that the, the next meeting is January 10th and at 6 o'clock at the uh, Police Department Training Facility at 5702 Femrite Drive and Sergeant Kimba Tu, who's our new Use of Force Coordinator, and Lieutenant Amy Chamberlain, who's our uh, software expert, will be on hand to show us the facility, to show us the, the toolkit belt, and whatever else we come up with. I know that I've um, participated in some events, at, and Kim has shown, he's quite, he might show us stuff that he, how he trains people, so I, I'm sure it'll be very interesting. So come and join us again next time. Is there a motion? And all in favor? Aye. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Yeah, thank you. And if you didn't, yeah, turn in your slip if you spoke.